0: Hello and welcome back to the Very Harry podcast. I'm your reader, Talon, and I've got something a little special for you guys today. Um, since I wasn't able to read a new chapter last week, I decided to make it up to you, and um, I'm making a double episode. But it's not going to be like any other double episode I've done. It's going to be Tales of Beetle the Bard and a chapter of Harry Potter. Pretty cool, right? Um, anyway, let's get started. Tales of Beetle with the Bard by J.K. Rowling, read to you by Talon and notes by Albus Dumbledore. Story 4. Babbity-rabbity and her cackling stunt. A long time ago, on a far-off land, there lived a foolish king who decided that he alone should have the power of magic. Therefore, commanded the head of his army to form a brigade. I don't know how to pronounce this word, of witch-hunters, and issued them with a pack of ferocious blackhounds. At the same time, the king caused proclamations to be read in every village and town across the land, wanted by the king, an instructor in magic. No true witcher wizard dared to volunteer for the post, for they were all in hiding from the brigade of witch-hunters. However, a cunning charlatan with no magical powers saw a chance of enriching himself, and arrived at the palace, claiming to be a wizard of enormous skill. The charlatan performed a few simple tricks, which convinced the foolish king of his magical powers, and was immediately appointed grand sorcerer in chief, the king, grand sorcerer in chief, the king's private magic master. There's no and, so I don't know. The charlatan bade the king to give him a large sack of gold, so that he might purchase wands and other magical necessities. He also requested several large rubies in, to be used in the casting of curative charms, and a silver chalice, again, I don't know how to pronounce this word, or two, for the storing and maturing of potions. All these things the foolish king supplied. The Charlton stowed the treasure safely in his own house and returned to the palace grounds. He did did not know that he was being watched by an old woman who lived in a hovel on the edge of the grounds. Her name was Babidi, and she was the washwoman who kept the palace linen soft, fragrant, fragrant, and white. Peeping from behind her drying sheets, Babbity saw the charlatan swap two twigs from one of the king's trees and disappear into the palace. Snap, not swap. (laughs) The charlatan gave one of the twigs to the king and assured him that it was a wand of tremendous power. It will only work, however, said the charlatan, when you are worthy of it. Every morning the charlatan and the foolish king walked out into the palace grounds, where they waved their wands and shouted nonsense at the sky. The charlatan was careful to perform more tricks so that the king remained convinced of his grand sorcerer's skill and the power of the wands that had cost so much had cost so much gold. One morning, as the charlatan and the foolish king were twirling their twigs and hopping in circles and chanting meaningless rhymes, a loud cackling re- reached the king's ears. Babidi, the washerwoman, was watching the king in the Trelawton from the window of her tiny cottage, and she was laughing so hard she soon sank out of sight, too weak to stand. I must look, I must look so most undignified to make an old washerwoman laugh so," said the king. He ceased on he ceased his hopping and twig twirling, and frowned. I grow weary of my practice. When shall I be ready to perform real spells in front of my subject sorcerer? The Charlton tried to soothe soothe his pupil assuring him that he would soon be capable of astonishing feats of magic but Babadee's cap- cackling had stung the foolish king more than the Charlton knew Tomorrow said the king we shall invite our court to watch the king watch the king perform magic The Charlton saw that time that the time had come to take his treasure and flee Alas, your majesty, it is impossible. I had forgotten to tell your, Majest- your majesty that I must set out on a long journey tomorrow. If you leave this palace without my permission, sorcerer, my brigade of witch hunters will hunt you down with their hounds. Tomorrow morning you will assist me to perform magic for the benefit of my lords and ladies, and if anyone laughs at me, I shall have you beheaded. The king stormed back to the palace, leaving the Charlton alone and afraid. Not all his cunning could save him now, for he could not run away, nor could he help the king with, with magic that neither of them knew. Seeking a vent for his fear and anger, the charlatan approached the window of Babity the washerwoman. Peering inside, he saw that the old lady was sitting at her table, polishing a wand. Polishing a wand. In a corner behind her, the king's sheets were wash- were washing themselves in a wooden tub. The Charlton understood at once that Babati was a true witch, and that she who had given him this awful problem could also solve it. Could also solve it. Solve Ugh. Solve it. <laughs> there we go. Crone roared the Charlton. You cackling, your cackling cost me dear. If you. F- if you fail to help me, I shall denounce you as a witch, and it will be you who's torn apart by the king's hounds. Got to drink water here. Okay. Okay, anyway. Old Wabbily smiled at the Charlton and assured him that she would do everything in her power to help. The charlton instructed her to conceal herself inside a bush, while the king gave his magical display, and to perform the king's spells for him, without his knowledge. Babity agreed to the plan, and asked one question. What, sir, if the king attempts a spell Babity cannot perform? The Trawlton scoffed. Your magic is more than equal to that fool's imagination, he assured her, and he retired to the castle, well pleased with his own cleverness. The following morning, all the lords and ladies of the kingdom, assembled in the palace grounds, the king climbed on stage in front of them, with the charlatan at his side. I first shall make this lady's hat disappear, cried the king, pointing his twig at at a noble woman. From inside a bush nearby, Babadie pointed her wand at the hat and caused it to vanish. The crowd was the great, oh, great was the astonishment and admiration of the crowd. In their loud applause, And loud their applause for the jubilant king. Next I shall make that horse fly, cried the king, pointing his twig at his own steed. From inside the bush, Babity pointed her wand at the horse, and it rose high into the air. The crowd was still more thrilled and amazed, and they roared their appreciation of the magical king. And now, said the king, looking all around for an idea, and the captain of his brigade of witch hunters ran forward. Your majesty, said captain. This very morning saber died of eating a poisonous toadstool bringing back to life your majesty majesty with your wand the captain heaved and the captain heaved onto the stage the lifeless body of the largest of the witchy, of the witch hunting hounds the polish king brandished this twig and pointed it at the dead dog But inside the bush, Babadie smiled and did not trouble to lift her wand, for no magic could raise the dead. When the dog did not stir, the crowd began to first whisper, and then laughed. They suspected the king's first two feats had been mere tricks, after all. "'Why doesn't it work?' the king screamed at the Charlton, who bethought himself of the only ruse left to him. "'There, your majesty, there!' He shouted pointing his there your majesty there he shouted pointing at the bush where Babity sat concealed I see her plain a wicked witch who's been blocking his blocking your magic with her own evil spells seize her somebody seize her Babity fled from the bush and at the brigade of the witch hunters set off in pursuit unleashing their hounds who who bade for Babity's blood but as she reached the low hedge, the little witch, vanished vanished from sight. And when the king and the trawls and the other courtiers gained the other side, they found a, the pack of witch-hunting wolves barking and scrabbling around a bent and aged tree. She has turned herself into a tree," screamed Charlton, and dreading lest Babbity Babbity turned back into a woman and denounce him, he added, "Cut her down, your Majesty. That is the way to treat evil witches." An axe was bought, brought at once, and the old tree was felled. Was felled? I don't know. To loud cheers from the, court, from the courtiers and Charlton. However, as they were making ready to return to the palace, the sound of a loud cackling stopped them in their tracks. "Fools!" cried Babbity's voice from the stump they had left behind. "No witch or wizard can be killed by being cut in half. Take the axe, if you take the axe, if you do not believe me, and cut the grand sorcerer in two." The captain, in the brigade of witch hunters, was eager to make the experiment. But as he raised the axe, the charlatan fell to his knees, screaming for mercy and confessing all his wickedness. As he was dragged away by, away to the dungeons, the tree stump cackled more loudly than ever. By cutting a witch in half, you have unleashed a dreadful curse upon your kingdom. Upon your kingdom, it told the petrified king. Henceforth, every stroke of harm that you inflict upon my fellow witches and wizards will feel like an axe stroke to your own side until you, you will wish to die of it. At that, the king fell to his knees too and told the stump that he would issue a proclamation at once, protecting all the witches and wizards of the kingdom and allowing them to practice their magic in peace. Very good, said the stump, but if you have not yet made amends to Babity, but you have not yet made amends to Babity, Anything, anything at all! cried the foolish king, wringing his hands before the stump. You will erect a statue of Babbity upon me in memory of your poor washer, of your poor washerwoman, and to remind you forever of your own foolishness," said the stump. The king agreed to it at once and promised to engage the foremost sculptor, the, for, the, the foremost sculptor in the land. And have the statue made of pure gold. Then the shamed king and all the noblemen, noble Sorry, I can't talk today. And all the noble men and women returned to the palace, leaving the tree stump cackling behind them. And when the grounds were destroyed, once, deserted once more, there wriggled from a hole between the roots of the tree stump a stout and whisker, whiskery old rabbit, with a wand clamped between her teeth. Bowdy hopped out of the grounds and far away and ever and after the golden statue of the washwoman stood upon the tree stump and no witch or wizard ha- was ever oh hopped out of the grounds and far away and ever after a golden statue of the washwoman stood upon the tree stump and no witch or wizard was ever prosecuted persecuted in the kingdom again Harry Potter and the Goblet of the Fire by J.K. Rowling read to you by Talon, chapter 11. Aboard the Hogwarts Express. There was a definite end of the holidays gloom in the air when Harry woke the next morning. Heavy rain was still splattering against the window as he got dressed in his jeans and sweatshirt. They would change into their school robes on the Hogwarts Express. He, Ron, Fred, and George had just reached the first floor landing on their way down to breakfast when Mrs. Weasley appeared at the foot of the stairs, looking harassed. Arthur, she called up the staircase, Arthur, urgent message from the ministry. Harry flattened himself against the wall as Mr. Weasley came clattering past with his robes on back to front, hurtled out of sight, and hurtled out of sight. When Harry and the others entered the kitchen, they saw Mrs. Weasley rummaging anxiously in the drawers. "'I've got a quill here somewhere,' said Mrs. Weasley, bending over the fire, talking to— "'I've got a quill here somewhere.' And Mr. Weasley was bending over the fire, talking to— Harry shut his eyes and heard hard, and opened them again to make sure that they were working properly. Amos Diggory's head was sitting in the middle of the flames like a large bearded egg. It was talking very fast and completely unperturbed, unperturbed, I don't know, <laughs> by flying sparks around it and the flames licking its ears. Muggle neighbors heard bangs and shouting, so they went and called up those, what do you call them, Policemen. Arthur, you've got to get over here. Here, said Mrs. Weasley breathlessly, pushing a piece of parchment, as a lot of peas. A bottle of ink and a crumpled quill into mister Weasley's hands. Weasley's hands Ugh. cannot talk today. It's a real stroke of luck I heard about it, said so mister Diggory's head. I had to come on I had to come into the office early and send a couple of owls, and I found the improper use of magic lot all setting off. If Rita Skeeter gets a hold of this one, Arthur. What is Mad I say happened? said mister Weasley, unscrewing his ink bottle. Loading up his quill and preparing to take notes, Mr. Diggory's head rolled. His eyes. He says he heard an intruder in his yard. He said he was creeping towards the house, but he was ambert, but he was ambushed by his dustbins. What did the des- What did the dustbins do? Asked Mr. Weasley, scribbling frantically. Made one, made one heck of a noise, and fired rubbish everywhere. As far as I can tell, said Mr. Diggory." Apparently, one of them was still rocketing around when the police men turned up. Mr. Weasley groaned. And what about the intruder, Arthur? You know, Mad Eye said. Mr. Diggory's head rolling its eye again, its eyes again. Someone creeping into his yard in the dead of night. More likely, there was a very shell-shocked cat wandering round somewhere, covered in potato peelings. But if the improper use of magic lock gets their hands on Mad-Eye, he's had it. Think of his record. We've got to get him off on a minor charge. Something in your department. What are exploding dustbins worth? Might be a caution, said Mr. Weasley, still riding very fast, his brow furrowed. Mad-Eye didn't use his wand. He didn't actually attack anyone. I'll bet he left out of bed and started jinxing everything he could reach through the window," said Mr. Diggory, "But they'll have a job proving it. There aren't any, there aren't any casualties." All right, I'm off," said Mr. Weasley, and he stuffed the parchment in, with his notes with its with his notes on it into his pocket and dashed out of the kitchen again. You get a drink of water. Well, anyway, all right. I'm off," said Mr. Weasley. Mr. Weasley said, and he stuffed the parchment with his notes on it into his pocket and dashed out of the kitchen again. Mr. Diggory's head looked round at Mrs. Weasley. "Sorry about this, Molly," he said more calmly. "Bothering you so early and everything, but Arthur is really the only one who can get Mad Eye off." And Mad I's supposed to be starting his new job today. Why he had to choose last night. Never mind Amos, said Mrs. Weasley. Sure you won't have a bit of toast or anything before you go? Oh, go on," Oh, go on then, said Mr. Diggory. Mrs. Weasley took a piece of buttered toast from the stack on the kitchen table, put it in put it onto the fire tongs and transferred it to Mr. Diggory's mouth. Thanks he said in a muffled voice, and then, with a small pop, he vanished. Harry could hear Mrs. Weasley calling he hurried goodbyes to Bill, Charlie, and Percy, Charlie, Percy, and the girls. Within five minutes, he was back into the kitchen, his robes on the right way now, dragging a comb through his hair. I'd better hurry. You've, you have a good turn, boys, said Mr. Weasley, to Harry, Ron, to Harry, Ron, and the twins, fastening a cloak over his shoulders and preparing to disappear Molly, are you are you going to be all right taking the kids to King's Cross? Of course I will," she said. "If you will just look after Mad Eye, we'll be fine." Mr. Weasley vanished. Bill and Charlie entered the kitchen. "Did someone say Mad Eye?" said Bill. "What's what's he been up to now?" He says someone's someone tried to break into his house last night," said Mrs. Weasley. Mad-Eye Moody, said George, thoughtfully, spreading marmalade on his toast. Isn't he that nutter? Your father thinks very highly of Mad-Eye Moody, said Mrs. Weasley sternly. Yeah, well, Dad collects plugs, doesn't he, said Fred quietly, as Mrs. Weasley left the room. Birds of a feather. Moody is the greatest wizard of all time, said, was a great wizard in his time. Ah, there we go. "'Was a great wizard in his time,' said Bill. "'He's an old friend of Dumbledore's, isn't he?' said Charlie. "'Dumbledore's not what you'd call normal, though, is he?' said Fred. "'I mean, I know he's a genius and everything, but... "'Who is Mad-Eye?' asked Harry. "'He's retired. He used to work at the Ministry,' said Charlie. "'I met him once when Dad took me to work with him. "'He was an Auror, one of the best.' A dark wizard catcher," he added, seeing Harry's blank look. Half the cells in Azkaban are full because, because of him. He made himself loads of en- enemies, though, in the families of people he caught mainly. And I heard he's been getting really paranoid. Paranoid, not paranoid. <laughs> paranoid in his old age. Doesn't trust anyone anymore. Sees dark wizards everywhere. Bill and Charlie decided to come off. Come and see everyone off at Kings Cross Station. Percy apologizing most profusely said that he really needed to get to work. I just can't justify taking more time off at the moment. At the moment, he told them, "Mr. Crouch is really starting to rely on me, rely on me." Yeah, you know what Percy said, George seriously. I reckon he'll know your name, your name soon. (laughs) I reckon he'll know your name soon, Mr. Weasley. Not Mr. Weasley. (laughs) Excuse me. Mrs. Weasley had braved the telephone in the village post office to order three ordinary muggle taxis and take them into London. Arthur tried to borrow ministry cars for us, said Mrs. Weasley. Mrs. Weasley whispered to Harry as they stood in the rain-washed yard, in the rain-washed yard, watching the taxi drivers heaving six heavy Hogwarts trunks into their cars. But there weren't any despair. Oh dear, they don't look happy, do they? Harry didn't like to tell Mrs. Weasley that muggle taxi drivers rarely transported overexcited owls, and Pigwidgeon was making an ear-splitting racket. Nor did it help that a, numble- that a number of filibusters' fabulous wet-start-no-heat fireworks went off unexpectedly with Fred's trunk. When Fred's trunk sprang open, causing the driver carrying it, carrying it to yell in fright and pain as Crookshanks clawed his way up the man's leg. The journey was uncomfortable, owing to the fact that they were jammed in the back of taxis with their trunks. Crookshanks took quite a while to recover from the fireworks. By the time they entered London, Harry, Ron, and Hermione were all severely scratched. They were relieved when they got out Excuse me, at King's Cross, at King's Cross, even though the rain was coming down harder than ever and they got soaked carrying their trunks across the busy road into the station harry was used to getting onto platform nine and three quarters by now it was a simple matter of walking straight through shocking walking straight through there we go i got it <laughs> and now i lost my place i'm so sorry <laughs> The only tricky part was doing this Oh wait, no. That's further. Was the simple matter of walking straight through the apparently solid barrier dividing platforms in 9 and 10. The only tricky part was doing this in an unobtrusive way. So was to avoid attracting muggle attention. They did it in groups today, Harry, Ron and Hermione, the most conspicuous since they since they were accompanied by Pigwidgeon and Crookshanks, went first. They leaned casually against the barrier, chatting unconcernedly, and slid sideways through it. And as they did so, Platformer 9 and 3 quarters materialized in front of them. The Hogwarts Express, a gleaming scarlet steam engine, was already there. Clouds of steam billowing from it. Through which many Hogwarts students and parents on the platform appeared like dark ghosts. Pigwidgeon became noisier and even than ever in response to the hooting of many owls through the mist. Harry, Ron, and Hermione set off to find seats and were soon stowing their lug- luggage in a compartment halfway along the train. They then hopped back down onto the platform to say goodbye to Mr. Weasley, not Mr., I keep saying Mr., Mrs. Weasley, there we go, Bill and Charlie. I might be seeing you sooner than you all think, said Charlie, grinning as he hugged Jenny goodbye. Why, said Fred keenly. You'll see, said Charlie. Just don't tell Percy I mentioned mentioned it. It's classified information information until such time as the Ministry sees fit to release it, after all. Yeah, I sort of wish we were back at Hogwarts this year, said Bill, his hands in his pockets, looking almost wistfully at the train. Why? said George, impatiently. You're going to have an interesting year, said Bill, his eyes twinkling. I might, have, I might even have time to come off and see and watch a bit of it. A bit of what? said Ron. At that moment, the whistle blew and Mrs. Weasley chived them towards the train. I think chivied them, chived, I don't know. (laughs) Thanks for having us to stay, Mrs. Weasley, said Herm- Oh, that's not Hermione's voice. Thanks for having us to stay, Mrs. Weasley, said Hermione as they climbed on board, closed the door, and leaned out of the window to talk to her. Yeah, thanks for everything, Missus Weasley," said Harry. "Oh, it was my pleasure, dears," said Missus Weasley. "I'd invite you for Christmas, but, well, I expect you're going—you're all going to want to stay at Hogwarts with one thing and another." "Mom," said Ron irritably. "What do you three know that we don't?" <coughs> You'll find out this evening, I expect, said Mrs. Weasley, smiling. It's going to be very exciting, mind you. I'm glad they've changed the rules. What rules, said Harry, Ron, Fred, and George together. I'm sure Professor Dumbledore will tell you. Now behave, won't you? Won't you, Fred? And you, George? The Pistons hissed loudly, and the train began to move. Tell us what's happening at Hogwarts, Fred bellowed. Tell us what's happening at Hogwarts. Fred bellowed out of the window as Mrs. Weasley, Bill, and Charlie sped away from them. What rules are they changing? But Mrs. Weasley only smiled and waved. Before the train had rounded the corner, she, Bill, Char- and Charlie disappeared. Harry, Ron, and Hermione went back to their com- compartment. The thick rain splattering the windows made it very difficult to see out of them. Ron undid its trunk, pulled out his mar- maroon dress robes, and flung them over Pigwidgeon's cage, the is hooting. Bagman wanted to tell us what was happening at Hogwarts, he said grumpily as he went down, as he, sitting down next to Harry. At the Quitters World Cup, remember? But my own mother wouldn't say. I wonder what. Shh, Hermione whispered suddenly, pressing her finger to her lips and pointing towards the compartment next to theirs. Harry and Ron listened, and they heard a familiar, drawing voice drifting through the open door. Father actually considered sending me to Durmstrang rather than Hogwarts, you know. He knows the headmaster, you see. Well, you know his opinion of Dumbledore. The man's such a mudblood lover. And Durmstrang doesn't admit that sort of riff-raff. But mother doesn't like the idea of me going to school so far away. Father says Durmstrang takes far more sensible, takes a far more sensible line than Hogwarts about the about the dark arts. Durmstrang's students actually learn them, not just the defense, work, not just the defense rubbish we do. Hermione got up, tiptoed to the, com- to the compartment door, and slid it shut, blocking out Malfoy's voice. So I think Sturmstrang would have have suited him, does he? She said angrily. I wish he had gone. Oh, that's not her voice. (laughs) So I think Sturmstrang would have suited him, does he? She said angrily. I wish he had gone. Then we wouldn't have to put up with him. Sturmstrang's another wizarding school, said Harry. Yes, said Hermione sniffly. And I've got a horrible... And it's got a horrible reputation according to an appraisal of magical ec- education in Europe. It puts a lot of emphasis on the dark arts. I think I've heard of it, said Ron, said Ron vaguely. Where is it? What country? Well, nobody knows, do they? said Hermione, raising her eyebrows. Oh, uh, why not? There's traditionally have been a lot of rivalry between all magic schools. Durmstrang and the Bulbatons like to conceal their whereabouts so nobody can steal their secrets, said Hermione, matter-of-factly. Come off it, said Ron, starting to laugh. Durmstrang's gotta be about the same size as Hogwarts. How are you gonna hide a great big castle? But Hogwarts is hidden, said Hermione in surprise. Everyone knows that. Well, everyone who reads Hogwarts a history, anyway. Just you, then, said Ron, said Ron. So, go on. How do you think you'll hide a place like Hogwarts? It's bewitched, said Hermione. If a muggle looks at it, all they see is a moldering old ruin with a sign over the entrance saying, Danger, do not enter, unsafe. So, Durmstrang will look like a ruin to an outsider, too? Maybe, said Hermione, shrugging. Or it might have muggle repelling charms on it, like the World Cup Stadium. And to keep foreign wizards from finding it, they've made an unpotable made an unpotable Come again. Well, you can enchant a building so it's impossible to plot on a map, can't you? Uh, if you say so," said Harry. "But I think Durmstrang must be somewhere in far north," said Hermione thoughtfully. Some are very cold because they've got fur capes as part of their uniforms. Ah, oh, think of the possibilities," said Ron dreamily. "Would have been so easy to push Malfoy off a glacier and make it look like an accident. Shame his mother likes him." The rain became heavier and heavier as the train, as the train moved farther north. The sky was so dark that the windows, and the windows so steamy. That the lanterns were lit by midway, the lunch, the, lunch, the lunch trolley came rattling along the corridor, and Harry bought a large stack of cauldron cakes for them to share. Several of their friends looked in on them, and as the afternoon progressed, including Seamus Finnegan, Dean Thomas, Dean Thomas, Neville Longbottom, round-faced, extremely forgetful, and Neville Longbottom. A round faced extremely forgetful boy who had been brought up by his formidable witch of a grandmother. Seamus was still wearing his Ireland rosette. Some of its magic seemed to be wearing off now. It was still squeaking. Troy! Mullet! Morian! But in a very feeble, exhausted sort of way. After half an hour or so, Hermione growing, Hermione growing tired of the endless Quidditch talk. Uh, how many pages are the last... Uh, not that many. Uh. Hmm. After half an hour or so, Hermione, growing tired of the endless Quidditch talk, buried herself once more in the standard book of spells, grade four, and started trying to learn a summoning charm. Neville listened jealously to the other's conversation as they relived relived the Quidditch match, the cup match. Gran didn't want to go, he said miserably. Wouldn't buy a ticket. It sounded amazing, though. It was, said, said Ron. Look at this, Neville. He rummaged in the trunk luggage rack and pulled out the miniature figure of Victor Crumb. Oh, wow, said Neville enviously as Ron tipped Crumb back into his pudgy hand. Onto his pudgy hand. We saw him right up close as well, said Ron. We were in the top box. For the first and the last time in your life, Weasley. Ah, that doesn't sound like For the first and the last time in your life, Weasley. Draco Mopway had, a, had appeared in the doorway. Behind him stood Crab and Goyle, his enormous his enormous, enormous ah, thuggish cronies, both whom appeared to have grown at least a foot during the summer. Evidently, they had overheard the conversation through, a com- through the compartment door, in which Dean and Seamus left ajar. ''Don't remember you asking to join us, Malfoy,'' said Harry coolly. ''Weasley, what is that?'' said Malfoy, pointing at Pigwidgeon's cage. A sleeve of Ron's dress robes was dangling from it, swaying with the motion of the train. A mouldy lace cuff, very obvious. Ron made to stuff the robes back out of sight, but Malfoy was too quick for him, and he seized the sleeve and pull. Look at this, said Malfoy. Ecstasy? I don't know. Holding up Ron's robes and showing Crabbe and Goyle. Weasley, you weren't thinking of wearing these, were you? I mean, they were very fashionable in about 1890. Eat dung, Malfoy, said Ron, the same color as the dress robes, as he snatched them back out of Malfoy's grip. Malfoy howled with... Derisive, laughter. Cobb and Goyle got, stupidly. So, going to enter, Weasley? Going to try and bring a bit of glory to the family name? There's money involved as well. You know, you'd be able to afford some decent robes if you won. What are you talking about? snapped Ron. Are you going to enter? Malfoy repeated. I suppose you will. Potter, you never miss a I suppose you will, Potter. Never miss a chance to show off, do you? Either explain on about... Explain what you're on about, or go away, Malfoy. Oh. Either explain what you're on about, or go away, Malfoy, said Hermione testily, over the top of Standard Book Spells, Grade 4. A gleeful smile spread across Malfoy's pale face. Don't tell me you don't know, he said delightedly. You've Got my, You've got a father and a brother at the ministry who don't even know? My god, my father told me about it ages ago. Heard from Cornelius Fudge, but then father's always associated with the top people at the ministry. Maybe your father's too junior to know about it, Weasley. Yes, the probability. They probably don't talk about important stuff in front of him. Laughing once more, Malfoy beckoned to Crabbe and Goyle and the three of them disappeared. Ron got to his feet and slammed the sliding compartment door so hard that behind them that behind them the glass shattered. "Ron," said Hermione reproachfully, repro- repro- and she pulled out her wand, muttered, "Reparo." <clears throat> and the glass shards flew back into a single pane on the back door. Well, making it look like Making it look like he knows everything we. Making. ah. Making it look like he knows everything we don't, Ron smile, snarled. Father's always associated with the top people at the ministry. Dad could have gotten a promotion any time. He just likes. he just likes it where he is. Of course he does, said Hermione quietly. Don't let Malfoy get you, Ron. Him? Get to me? As if said Ron, picking up one of the remaining cauldron cakes and squashing it to a pulp. Ron's bad mood continued for the rest of the journey. He didn't talk much as they changed into their school robes. and was still glaring when the Hogwarts Express slowed down as as it finally stopped in the pitch darkness of Hogsmeade Station. As the train doors opened, there was a rumble of thunder overhead. Hermione bundled up Crookshanks and her inner cloak, and Ron left his dress robes over Pigwidgeon as they left the train. Heads bent and eyes narrowed against the downpour. The rain was now was now coming down so thick as if so thick and fast it was as though buckets of ice of cold water were emptied repeatedly over their heads. Hi, Hagrid Harry yelled, See seeing a gigantic silhouette at the end of the platform. All right, Harry Hagrid bellowed back, waving. See you at the feast if we don't see at the feast if we don't drown. First years tradici- traditionally reach Hogwarts Castle by sailing across the lake with Hagrid. Oh, I wouldn't fancy a- I wouldn't fancy crossing the lake in this weather," said Hermione, feverently shivering as they inched slowly along the dark platform with the rest of the crowd. A hundred horse horseless carriages carriages stood waiting for them outside the station. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Neville climbed gratefully into one of them. The door shut with a snap, and a few moments later, with a great lurch, the long procession of carriages was rumbling and splashing its way up the track towards Hogwarts Castle. This has been The Very Harry Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Bye-bye.